if you're planning to push an issue in Congress, don't expect anything to happen anything to happen overnight. Um, plan well, uh, build a large coalition, um, include as broad a variety of of stakeholders as possible, and be prepared to work your ass off and don't give up. Um, you know, I think the lesson here is perseverance. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, The Long Road to Permanence. The year-end omnibus and stimulus package approved by Congress and signed by then-President Trump included the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act. In short, this legislation prevents U.S. craft spirits producers from seeing a 400% increase on federal excise taxes. For the craft spirits industry, it is a victory more than a decade in the making. Our guest, Mark Schilling, is one of the many, many people responsible for helping to make it a reality through fly-ins to the Capitol, phone calls, emails, countless hours of work, and more. Mark is a partner in Big Thirst Consulting, specializing in distillery startup operations and project management. After spending 20 years as a government and regulatory affairs professional, aka lobbyist, he founded Revolution Spirits Distilling Company in 2013. He also helped establish the Texas Distilled Spirits Association in 2012. He's a past president of ACSA, and he's the ACSA Government Affairs Committee Chair. Mark recently joined Craft Spirits Magazine Editor-in-Chief Jeff Cialetti via Zoom to discuss the journey to permanent FET relief. Uh, With everything going on in the world right now, it's hard to, you know, really get super excited about anything sort of in a vacuum. But yeah, it's a it's a big deal. Um, I mean, I guess one one conversation I was having recently um, was saying that, you know, with everything that distillers are dealing with, um, this is coming across more right now as a lifeline than the game changer that it should be had we not had a pandemic to worry about. Like, would you sort of agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you if you look at all the added pressures over the last 12 months or so uh, on distilleries, not passing this would have really just been a, you know, like a chop block at the knees for a lot of folks. And at what point um, did it look like permanence was actually going to happen? Because I know we were just talking about extensions up until probably December. Yeah, well, there, there was always a, <clears throat> not, I wouldn't necessarily say always, in the last month or six weeks, there was always some little grain of hope that there would be <clears throat> a possibility of permanency. And, you know, it kind of uh, ebbed and flowed. There were some members of Congress who um, all the time, for, <clears throat> for years, have said permanency is the right thing, but we never could get the right people in the right place to get there. And I think, uh, you know, we just happened to, to finally get all the pieces in place at the right time. Whether or not the pandemic had any additional impact on that is, is really hard to say. But it may be that enough people felt like, yeah, there are enough added pressures that let's just go ahead and do this, get it, 
get it taken care of. Well, I mean, I guess if there could be any silver lining coming out of the pandemic, I guess that could potentially be it. I mean, if we're even allowed to talk about silver linings. Yeah, I know. I mean, it, it's something I was always confident that we would get permanence. The question was how long would it take and, and you know, what would it take to get there? And it's funny, I think I remember saying way back in the beginning that my expectations were that it would take 10 years. Now, that was completely made up at the time. It just seemed like, um, you know, based on my previous experience, that getting anything done in Congress would take a long time and require a lot of education and build up. Uh, I had no idea that it would take almost exactly 10 years. Let's go back to the beginning. Um, what was it like saying, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to fight for this. Um, uh, and what were the prospects back then? I mean, how did it all begin for you? Well, so I wasn't there for the very beginning for the sort of the birth of the idea. But when I was um, doing the initial preparation, getting ready to uh, file our applications and start up Revolution Spirits, um, I learned about the issue. It was something that a handful of distillers around the country had been sort of coalescing online over and a few things had, had already started to happen. Um, Ralph Lorenzo had gotten uh, a representative in New York to, to file what was really the original bill. And Melkin Kosrovian had put together a sort of grassroots strategy document and had been lining up distilleries around the country to, to support it. But the, the thing that really stood out for me, and, and to, to go back a little bit, the reason I got involved because of my background in lobbying, I saw this as a place that as I was getting ready to enter this industry, um, an area that I could give back that I had some knowledge and experience with. And I said, you know, this is, this is one of the things I'm going to do to become a part of the industry. And so one of the first things I did, I happened to be going to DC for some meetings and I called Discus and made an appointment to go by and, and talk with their lobby team. And, you know, I didn't really have any expectations one way or the other, but I was met with, <clears throat> with some resistance and the, from their perspective, they felt like even bringing this up would put a target on our backs for actual, actually raising the excise tax. But, you know, I, I felt like, and I think everybody at the time felt like we were in a good place. We had a good story to tell. Beer and wine had similar uh, tax treatments in place already. And, you know, we were prepared to go forward with it. And I think, I think Discus saw that and decided that uh, they would uh, get on board. So in the beginning, I would say, I think a lot of people thought that it was folly and that it would never happen and that um, it might even result in the opposite. And so over the course of these, these many years, um, 
if you had to guess, and I've asked some other people this question too, and of course nobody really ever has an answer, but <laughs> it's just fun to sort of think about. If you had to guess how many hours of meetings, calls you had with, with you know, members of Congress and their staff, um, as well as how many miles do you think you walked through the congressional office hallways? Maybe 10, 10 miles. Um, I could be grossly underestimating there because I've been mean, numerous trips over the years, uh, not just for the fly-ins fly that we've had, but other trips as well. Um, hours, man, um, probably several hundred at least. Wow. And... And that doesn't include all the hours just thinking about it, laying in bed awake in the middle of the night thinking about it. <laughs> um, and it's been kind of a roller coaster. Um, I know 2017, it was, you know, probably the first, um, the first anything was passed and it was for two years and then you know, then there was the extension and then um, there was, you know, concern over whether there was going to be another extension or are we ever going to get this permanent, um, you know, was there ever a point where it felt like it was out of reach? No. Um, I think the frustrating thing, the most frustrating thing about it is that for so many years, it was always just out of reach. It seemed like we were always just right around the corner. And it was never about not having enough support in Congress to pass it. It was about other things getting in the way. And that is supremely frustrating. You know, when you have such a uh, such bipartisan support, you know, three quarters of the House and three quarters of the Senate all signed on as co-sponsors, uh, that's not something that you see very often. And I wish there were a way to go back and easily look to see when the last time a piece of legislation had that kind of support, because um, I, I think it's, those, those are few and far between. The frustration of having what should be a slam dunk for even just a standalone bill to get passed and be caught up in all of the challenges of process and rules and leveraging, you know, people leveraging other issues, uh, you know, for their own, uh, you know, bills and things they're trying to, to pass or get included in something. Um, that, that's the most frustrating part for me over the entire course, I think. And, you know, there would be congressional turnovers every two years. Um, did that ever make things difficult? Um, was there ever any key people that you lost that you know it felt like you were starting from square one again? Well, I think every time you have new members in Congress, you've got to go and educate them on the issue. But you know the turnover relatively small compared to uh, the total number of folks. I don't think you know. There was no one we ever lost that was so key that it was a, a major concern. 
it was really more about making sure that the new folks were were well informed and on board and that we didn't lose any ground. So yeah, it's not like you, you really lost a Ron Wyden or somebody like that. Right. And you know, there were a lot of folks who were not necessarily directly involved in getting this deal done who were really helpful along the way. Uh, you know, uh, Senator Portman, uh, Kevin Brady, who was uh, chair of Ways and Means for a period of time while the Republicans were, were in control of the House. Uh, I met with him several years ago and I had known him for a long time from his time in the Texas legislature and he was, his background is in e economic development. So he immediately understood the, the benefits and, and sort of the, the concerns around the issue. And he was the one who suggested early on that we push it for it in terms of parity with beer and wine, understanding that they had, you know, already in place a, a reduced rate for smaller producers. There were lots of folks like that kind of along the way who kind of played roles in the background. Um, you know, and I feel like if I tried to give credit to everybody that I could think of, I would leave somebody out. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, like, I shouldn't have even said said that. I should have just <laughs> said, you know, there were a lot of people involved. And same thing on, on the side of, of uh, distillery owners and folks, too. I mean, there are tons of people involved over the years. Some have been there throughout. Some have kind of come and gone. But, you know, it's really a credit to every distiller who ever picked up the phone or sent an email or had somebody out to tour the distillery to talk about the issue that this finally got done. After a break, more from Mark on the long road to FET relief. This podcast is a production of the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine. ACSA is the only registered national nonprofit trade group representing the U.S. craft spirits industry. Through conventions, webinars, publications, competitions, special programs, and more, it's our mission to elevate and advocate for the community of craft spirits producers. Learn more at AmericanCraftSpirits.org. Craft Spirits Magazine is the unparalleled resource for in-depth insight and intelligence for the entire craft spirits universe. The bi-monthly digital magazine features the information and analysis that small independent spirits producers and allied businesses need to operate in today's complex craft beverage market. To see our latest issue and subscribe for free, visit craftspiritsmag.com. The Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act had overwhelming support in both the House of Representatives and in the Senate. Jeff asked Mark about the obstacles to its passage. Well, it's unusual for a standalone bill to get passed, particularly a standalone tax bill. So there's always going to be the prospect of it gets rolled into this omnibus bill here or this tax extenders bill here or some other thing somewhere else. And this is, this is a big frustration I think a lot of people have with Congress is the way that they operate in terms of just waiting and rolling, you know, dozens and dozens of issues into one giant bill. Um, and then, you know, in some ways that makes it harder 
to get something passed. I guess in some ways they, they think that uh, it may be easier to get something passed. You know, if, if there's something you don't like that's in this bill, but it also contains some stuff that, that you own that you've been trying to pass, you know, maybe it's a trade-off. That's super frustrating. I think one of the other obstacles is there are a lot of folks in both parties that don't want to pass any sort of, any, any legislation that is going to take money out of the treasury unless there is some equal and opposite provision that's going to make up for that, that reduction, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that was always a challenge. And the numbers, so far as I've looked at, seem to bear out that the reduction in the rate has not materially affected the gross amount of tax revenue collected. Now, I haven't looked for um, any of 2020 yet. TTB you know, has not updated uh, that information, but you know, 2020 being an odd year, I'm not sure if it's gonna be a fair year to compare. But I think those are, are two of the, the bigger challenges for it. And there are, I mean, now you've got any distillers that have really opened in the past, I guess, three years now, they've never even existed with that 1350 rate. Um, right. So I, I can't imagine. So, so it's not like um, even they would be taking anything out. That's just more incremental revenue. And I also think that, would you say that the fact that it, this sort of huge barrier for entry into the distilling business, which, you know, obviously being such a highly taxed um, category uh, probably makes it pretty daunting for anybody to join. But now that people have, you know, now that, now that third, now that 270 is, is permanent, would you say that, any sort of reservations people have had about getting into the business have been allayed and we're more likely to see, you know, pandemic notwithstanding, likely to see, you know, more people get into the business because there are fewer barriers, barriers to entry now. And that ultimately would mean more tax revenue. Yeah, I'm not sure if the lower rate itself is a direct incentive to folks who have been thinking about entering the industry, but I think the permanence of it is a huge incentive for potential investors into the industry. Uh, you know, investors are looking for a matter, you know, some degree of certainty in right. their investments, right? And we know over the last couple of years that uh, that kind of investment money has been harder to raise because of the lack of, of certainty about what the tax burden is going to be and whether or not a, a business will be able to, to, to manage that. Yeah. I mean, they, they don't like investors don't like volatility The you know, even look at the stock market. They're always saying that like, you know, the stock market, it doesn't like uncertainty either. It's like uncertainty is probably, anathema to you know a good solid performing industry so i think that that makes a lot of sense right and i, I think any larger projects um 
whether it's the investors or the, the, the distillers, uh, they'd probably be looking closely at that. But, you know, most of the, the new DSPs are relatively small. And I think, at least my observation is, in, in many, many cases, those folks haven't really gotten a full understanding of what they're getting into. So they don't necessarily understand um, how the, the, the various taxes work and impact the business. They don't necessarily understand uh, sort of payment schedules and expectations, things like that. So from this whole process, what would you say some of the biggest lessons you've learned were? Um, if you're planning to push an issue in Congress, don't expect anything to happen, anything to happen overnight. Uh, plan well, uh, build a large coalition, um, include as broad a variety of, of stakeholders as possible, and be prepared to work your ass off and don't give up. Um, you know, I think the lesson here is perseverance. And uh, now that this is done, what do you see as the next uh, priority issues for ACSA to be working on, legislatively or, yeah. or regulatorily? Well, sort of a combination of things. You know, probably the biggest thing right now, and which has been highlighted by by the last year or so, is direct consumer shipping. You know, it's clear to me that in general. E-commerce for alcohol is going to grow. The question is, how is it going to grow? There are a lot of platforms out there right now that are allowing distillers to get products shipped around the country in, in ways that they haven't been able to in the past. Some of them are maybe operating in some gray areas. And I think, uh, you know, the next year or so, we'll see a lot of change in that regard. The way that we approach that is really important. Um, I think, you know, we're, we're constantly discussing and planning and strategizing for what that's going to look like, and we want to be prepared for it. We want to be a part of whatever the discussion is and whatever the eventual solutions are. I think that um, from a regulatory perspective, continuing to uh, build our relationship with TTB and monitoring potential rule changes. We still have a significant portion of the uh, labeling and COLA modernization um, proposal that has not been dealt with. You know, that could happen sometime this year or some, some more parts of it could happen sometime this year. And, you know, there may be other things that come up that we'll be keeping an eye on. Well, the, the, the FDA thing was a bit of a curveball. I'm glad that kind of got um, <laughs> solved. It was. I don't think anybody ever thought um, that ACSA would be involved in advocacy efforts with FDA or with hand sanitizer or anything of the sort. Um, hopefully, it is resolved for, for good. Um, you know, I think people, for the most part, want to get back to 
their core business, making spirits and selling them. And I would be happy if I never had to talk about the intricacies of hand sanitizer and over-the-counter drug regulations ever again. Yeah, I, I added to that because I made you write that column. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Sorry about I'm, that. I'm, I'm glad we're at least on the back end of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, is, um, I mean, what's sort of the outlook now as far as, you know, just in general, regardless of the issue, um, working with Washington on anything now that, um, as we record this, we're, we're 24 hours from a new administration taking over. Of course, when this runs, the new administration will already be in place. I mean, is, that, is there going to be a major tonal change that's going to kind of alter the process of dealing with Washington in any way, at least from where you stand? You know, I don't think so. Obviously, there will be new people in place in, in both Congress and agencies around the country. Um, but from, a, from an advocacy perspective, I think that the smart folks are agnostic about partisan politics. You know, when we go to the Capitol and ask for votes, we want votes from everyone. Um, in support or opposition to whatever our issues are, regardless of party. And, you know, this is not, we're not the kind of industry that really can or should try to choose sides uh, politically. We're the kind of industry that should educate everyone about the benefits and challenges that our industry, uh, you know, pose or, or have in place for the country. And that means if Biden appoints a whole slew of folks to agencies that we deal with, um, you know, we want to ensure that they understand how our industry operates and what our needs and challenges are. Same thing with Congress. So, you know, let's say, for example, one of the chambers turns from one party to the next. Does that make it harder for us? Maybe, um, but only in the sense that we've got to redouble our efforts on educating those members and those staff ab about our issues. And, and you've already sort of proved too that um, this, like particularly with the uh, FET bill, it was it was bipartisan. It was like it it really wouldn't matter who was in charge at any given time because you had such you know three quarters of um, both houses of Congress on it so I, I think that unlike a lot of other things where you're lobbying for very partisan things I think this is once and for all this whole effort has proved that um, craft distilling is is bipartisan truly and our issues are truly bipartisan you know, I, I think that's 100% correct. And I think a, a lot, maybe not all, but most business issues are either bipartisan or nonpartisan in nature. And they, they sometimes get made partisan by people trying to leverage other sort of political issues into them in some way. Yeah, and I think what's smart for us is to stay away from that and stick strictly with the, you know, the facts and the impacts to our businesses. 
That must have been somewhat difficult from a communication standpoint back in 2017 when um, the first uh, uh, reduction passed, the two-year reduction passed, because it was attached to such a controversial, very highly partisan, larger omnibus bill that was a trillion and a half uh, tax cut that, you know, was very, very polarizing. So was that sort of difficult to kind of, uh, I mean, almost communicate? Because like there might be some people within the membership that were uh, in favor of the the trillion plus cut, but then others who were vehemently opposed to it, depending on what side of the political spectrum they're on. But unabashedly, a good thing kind of came out of it for our members. Right. And, you know, this goes back to the, to what I mentioned earlier about omnibus bills generally, you know, we did have feedbacks from some folks who were very disappointed um, in 2017. We had the same kind of thing happen this, this year or, or this past year with, with uh, the permanency. Uh, you know, it can be challenging for, for anybody, I think, to have to say, this, there's a lot of stuff in this bill that tastes bad, but I really need this one thing. So, you know, how am I going to make that decision? That's hard. Yeah, and that's, but that's politics. <laughs> for, for, in terms of ACSA, for us, all of those other issues were, whether we liked them or not, they were not our charge. Our charge was to pass FET reform. And that was the vehicle that was available for it. And, you know, it's not like we, we can march to Washington and say, this is how we want you to do this and expect that that's how it's going to get done. We kind of have to take the vehicle that's offered or else we're going to be told to get off the ride, you know? Absolutely. So beyond um, government related stuff, what else you got going on right now you want to talk about? Well, um, I, it's a little early, but I am, I've, I've got a project I've been working on for quite some time that I thought we were just about ready to announce back in March. And then a month later, I thought that the pandemic had absolutely killed it. It's been a roller coaster year, I know for, for lots of people, for most people, but you know, I thought this project was dead. And then sometime um, back in the early fall, it sort of came back to life in a slightly different format. And I don't want to jinx anything by, by saying much more other than hopefully we'll be ready to talk about it in the next maybe four to six weeks. Oh, that is such a tease. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I've been... I've been staying busy, you know, outside of ACSA things with uh, doing some consulting work on the side. And, uh, you know, that's something I enjoy because I learned a lot of things about this industry the hard way mm -hmm. by doing it and failing or doing it wrong. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of folks out there that I think, uh, you know, could use a little extra extra help. So between now and then, that's that's kind of where I'm spending my time. And what do you think the key trends are going to be this year beyond, you know, 
pandemic related things? <laughs> um, you know, that that's hard to say. I, I, I have a better sense of the things that I'd like to see not be key trends anymore, but I do think you'll see uh, more emphasis on the education around blending mm-hmm. of whiskeys. You know, I think in the past, uh, blended whiskeys have been considered to be uh, bottom of the shelf or, or not quality or, or something like that. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot more people are looking at being innovative and creative in the way that they do that. I think you'll see more of that. And I think as consumers learn more about what that means, that, that blended whiskeys will become much, much more popular and accepted. I think cocktails to go is going to continue to be a big thing. I think a lot of legislatures will probably pass legislation uh, allowing those permanently in some form or another. Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, I think everybody is out there looking for new, creative, innovative things to do. So hopefully we'll see some cool stuff. That's our program for today. Thanks to Mark for joining us. If you'd like to keep up with him and eventually find out about that next project of his, you can follow him on Twitter at mshilling, that's M-S-H-I-L-L-I-N-G. This conversation is part of an oral history on FET relief that we'll be publishing in the next issue of Craft Spirits Magazine. If you're not already a subscriber, you can sign up for free at craftspiritsmag.com. We'll be back in a few weeks with Alex Castle of Old Dominic Distillery. Until then, thanks for listening, and cheers. Cheers.